This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Last week, Becky Pringle, President of the National Education Association, the largest teacher organization in the United States, wrote a letter to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and Governor Asa Hutchinson, the Chair and Vice Chair of the National Governors Association, in which she formally asked governors to give top priority to the vaccination of teachers. In that letter, President Pringle says that 70% of the teachers participating in an NEA survey say that being vaccinated will make them feel much safer in returning to the in-person instruction. However, others say that the chance of dying from COVID are 33 times greater for people over the age of 70, at least in Massachusetts, than for the typical school teacher who is in Massachusetts just 41 years of age at the median. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to discuss these issues with President Becky Pringle on the Education Exchange. She has been the president of the association, the nation's largest labor union. She assumed that role in September 2020. She's a native of Philadelphia, a middle school science teacher. She's had many years of classroom experience and she served as a member of the board of directors of the Pennsylvania State Education Association and also as the secretary treasurer of the National Education Association before becoming uh, its vice president and then its president. So, Madam Pringle, I, I, I'm pleased you said I may call you Becky. That'll make it all more fun to have this conversation. So, Becky, isn't it isn't it best to vaccinate the people who are greatest risk of serious illness and death first? So, um, Professor Peterson, I'm glad. No, no, Paul, just, just. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we're just going to have a conversation. So first, let me say to you that, you know, uh, I, I appreciate the way you kindly said many years. <laughs> um, uh, I, I taught for over 30 years. Middle level learners, you know, those, the, the, the wonder years, uh, the wonders of science. Um, it was the most important job other than raising my two children that, that I had. And I really appreciate you, Paul, the, the decades of, of work you've done around education, big complex education issues. So I'm, I'm really pleased to join you this afternoon. We sent that letter to the uh, National Governors, Governors Association because we have been saying the same thing for 11 months, the same thing. Follow the science and let me just say, can I just say this on your show? I'm so incredibly glad that we have a president who believes in science, so there's that. As a scientist, as a, as a science teacher, it was painful for me to go through a period of time where that was questioned but we've been saying for 11 years, let's follow the science. So that's, that's first. Um, and uh, we said we need the resources to reopen our schools to in-person learning safely and equitably. And so um, as the CDC put out its new guidelines uh, and they made it much more clear, I, you know, they were a little more strident in some of those areas. I'm sure, Paul, you could you could recite them with me. I'm sure you could. Yeah, but no, listen, I, let me ask you this question again, because scientists say they have documented that the risk of dying of COVID is concentrated on the elderly. And it is almost de minimis for children. And it's not that great for people in their prime time working ages. It's, it's one out of 100,000 in Massachusetts for prime time people. 
it's 33 out of 100,000 for people over the age of 70. And that's, a, that's science. That's and, and Paul, that's exactly where I'm going. And what we've been saying is let's, let's, let's listen to what the CDC has to tell us. And so to your point, um, uh, what they said to us was all the mitigation factors need to be in place. And they also said that they believe that educators should be prioritized in vaccinations and in, in receiving vaccinations. And as you listen to what, as you read through, if you dug into the, to the report itself and you learned more about why they were saying that is because they, a couple of things. First of all, they knew that their research was incomplete in terms of the spread inside schools. And one of the things that they acknowledged is that they needed to do more research. And, you, and I'm sure you probably saw the latest research coming out of uh, Marietta, Georgia, where, where before they were talking about the spread wasn't that much in schools, but when they did that study, they talked about the fact that in, in, that, in that instance, in that research, they saw uh, the spread significantly more than in other, the other places that they had done. So one of the things they said is they need to do more research because it does vary depending on the community you're in. So while they did say it's not a prerequisite, um, and we haven't been calling for that either, all of we have been calling for is making sure that educators are prioritized. So you are not arguing that you a teacher should not go into the classroom unless she's vaccinated. That's correct. You That's correct. Not we're not, that. we're, not, we're, not, we're not, not saying that. That we're not saying that. Many, and not only many, that, Paul. Many NEA members are today teaching in person in class. That is exactly right. So let me right. say a couple of things. So not only that, but let me let me be clear about this that um, we're saying to your point about 70 year olds, we're saying let's, let's listen to the guidelines that the CDC has put, put forth. And they have a prioritization group and they're putting educators in that. They're not putting them ahead of 85 year olds and frontline workers, they're not doing that. They're saying prioritize them, not, over, not prioritize them over those groups. That's not what they're saying and it's not what we're saying. So I wanna be clear about that. Um, and then what I want to also be clear about is when we did our survey with over 70% of our educators saying they would feel so much safer if they had the vaccination, the reason is, and that's why I started where I started, because um, Paul, you've been at this for a long time, so you know this is not a simplistic issue. It's not. It's complex. It's all of those things. The reason they're saying that and, and, the, and the, the educators you're talking about are saying they want to be vaccine before they go back to in-person learning is because they've been they've been waiting for 11 months to get the resources to actually put in place the mitigation factors that the CDC says need to be in place so that students can be safe and so that they can be safe. Yeah, that now listen, listen, to listen to what Nicholas Kristof wrote in the New York Times just yesterday. He said, Democratic governors have presided over one of the worst blows to the education of disadvantaged Americans in history. Educational disruptions during this pandemic may increase the number of high school dropouts by 3.8%. We have widened race gaps and long-term harm to some of our most marginalized youth. Now, it would seem to me that it's absolutely essential that we open the schools as quickly as possible. In fact, tomorrow, we really need to, they are opening them up in New York City to middle school children today. And the governor of Massachusetts is saying, do it immediately. Many governors are saying that. Don't you think it's time to open the schools now? Get vaccinations as soon as possible, but open up the schools now. Don't you agree? 
there is nothing our educators across this country want to do more than to more than to be in person with their students. You know, I as a, I said before, a science teacher, you know, the, the the idea of being virtual for a year with my students, where I couldn't do the kind of experiential learning that I would want to, that I'm used to doing, that I was trained to do. That's what all of our educators are saying. They just want to do it safely. And so- But isn't it, it, how risky is it? It's, it, how risky is it? How many teachers have died in the trenches this past year? So I'm not, I am absolutely not going to say that one life is not worth making sure that all of our student, our teachers are safe. And I'll tell you, Paul, I get an email every single day, every day from one of our state presidents in our, in our, in our states throughout the country, letting me know that another member of ours has died from COVID. I'm not, I will never say that that one life is worth us going back, rushing back into schools that are not safe. But to your point, most of our schools are already open to in-person learning in some form, form, form or fashion because they're finding ways to get the resources to open them safely. All we're saying is that the federal government has a role to play to ensure that, th that all of our schools have the resources to reopen safely. That's what we all wanna do. Why have we had to wait for 11 months to do that? And I know well, no, 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 listen, no. Last November, the schools that were more likely to be closed were schools that had collective bargaining agreements. And they, it was argued at the time that they couldn't open the schools in cities across the country because collective bargaining agreement could not be uh, made with teachers over opening the schools quickly, even while in suburban areas, rural areas, schools were open. There was a huge concentration of closed schools in our cities where unions are strong and disadvantaged kids are living and are being harmed every single day. So Paul, let me try to uh, explain what I'm, I'm sure when you saw the results <laughs> of your survey, Education Next survey, you're prob probably a little shocked that the, um, uh, as you, as you um, looked at those results, you saw that the favorable, favorability of, uh, percentage of teacher unions for the public actually increased over the over the course of the pandemic. And let me tell you why that happened, because you know what you you hear I wasn't about, shocked. I wasn't shocked at all. Oh, you weren't shocked? Well, good. No, okay. Not at all. Let me no, tell you why. I let me saw tell you that why. data before, before anybody else did. Well, <laughs> let me tell you why that's true. Let me tell you why. Because here's the thing. What you just said, Paul, is what's reported out of the news. So you hear, you know, about the big blowouts in Chicago and other places. What you do not hear about is the collective bargaining agreements all over this country, the memorandums of understanding all over this country that far exceed the ones you heard about, where the unions and, and management came together in what we call labor management collaboration. They came together to do what was right for the kids, what was right for, their, for the educators, what was right for the community. They involved everyone and they came up with how they were going to get the resources to protect their kids and educators. And they came up with an agreement. They used a collective bargaining agreement to do that. That, that happened at least 85% 
of all, all throughout the country. So they actually were able to use those agreements to do that. That's why, because they saw unions out there. So what is necessary in order to open the schools? What is necessary? You said that this so what's necessary is exactly what the CDC said, right? Uh, mask wearing and uniform mask wearing, not, not if we want to wear masks or not wearing them incorrectly, wearing them correctly. I don't think many people disagree with that. That's a pretty broad consensus on that. I, I don't think that's preventing schools from opening. There may be some places where th that could be a disagreement, but that's not why half the kids in this country were not going to school at all. So Paul, that's Last one. November. That's one. And as you know, the CDC started there because they, th they believe that's the most important thing. It is not consistently happening. So I want to be clear about that. Um, so mask wearing, you social distancing, they were much clearer about that, even in those in those um, communities, where the, uh, especially in those communities where the spread is really high, they said at least six feet, at least six feet. And we know, if you, and Paul, you've mentioned this before, I want to go back to something you said before, you know where the schools are that cannot meet those guidelines. You know where they are and you know the students that are going to those schools. It's the same students and communities that were disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. It's our black and brown and indigenous communities, same ones, our students living in poverty, the same ones because they but have been- You know, it's more dangerous for them to be on the streets than in- well, You know what, a lot of it's people- It's more have, dangerous. You're more likely to get COVID if you're a child on the streets than in the schools. You're not, so that's, you're you're, not you're, you're, more <laughs> at risk at school than you are on the streets. And, and and you're repeating something that a lot of people are saying and have no evidence to support that. Let me say this. We know that schools that were built when Franklin Roosevelt was president aren't safe anyway. They are already sick buildings. And, the, and now we're, we're asking those students to go back and, and educators to go back into those buildings at a time we're in a pandemic. So you don't want the children to go back to school until the buildings, new buildings are built? I'm asking- Time to wait. Um, at, there are there are ways that you can improve the ventilation in those buildings. There are ways. No, I what think I'm saying you're is, absolutely us, correct. There, we Paul, can Paul, improve Paul, ventilation, but are you going to wait until the ventilation systems of all the schools are 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 there are but Paul, before kids can go back to school? That's a long. Think of the risk. But here's the thing: children are suffering by not going to school. And why, why all of a sudden do we care about that? Why all of a sudden do we care about that? No, I've cared about that all my life and so have you. years, 50 years, we've been talking about modern, modernizing schools. So let's just be clear that we as a country have not lived up to the promise that we've made to our children forever. So let's be clear about that. But in this moment, what I'm saying to you is that we have identified ways that we can make the ventilation in those schools safer. We have. And I'm not talking about replacing the entire HVAC systems, but we have identified ways that we can do it and we can do it quickly, but we still don't have the resources. And it's the same schools that we're not given the resources. Well, there's to been a lot students. of money that's come to the school districts over the past year from the federal government that's being unused. So it's up to the school districts to turn that money into better ventilation. But, but you can't wait, that takes time, that takes a long time. You can't sort of harm children day in and day out, force them to look at these screens day in and day out. 
So yeah. Paul, you know what? My, my, let me tell you, let me, let me share this with you. Think of their, their emotional development. I'm thinking about it right now. Cause at, as we are having this discussion, my grandson is in the basement. My family's moved, my children moved back in with me. He's in the basement learning virtually. I'm watching firsthand and he has me. So that's fabulous, right? Um, he yeah, has definitely. It is he's definitely. Lucky. He's very lucky. I just want to say, I was a better education than ever. If he <laughs> I got you for a fabulous teacher. teacher. So he has a building grandmother, but of course she's talking to you right now. So he's. Not, I'm not helping her, helping him right now. But he has two parents who are able to work virtually, and be able to be with him and and help him in this moment. Um, but even in that situation, so I'm watching it. I'm, it's unfolding before my eyes. I know he needs to be. It's been almost a year. He needs to be with other students. He needs to be there. But his parents, and me too, want to make sure that the schools have done everything. I want them to be able to look me in the eye and tell me that's the safest place for him to be. Right now, they can't do that. They can't do that yet. So we are working, instead of having these kind of debates and discussions, what we're doing is we are actually working. Um, uh, uh, with 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 um, organizations within the community. Let me tell you something I asked. Every day that the schools don't open, the racial gap in the United States is widening. Every single Yeah, and day. when did we care about that? Open. Now all of a sudden we're caring about that. Well, that's, people that's cared what's about different. that for that a long so time. Actually, we've been making some progress on that. It's so, no, no, that is so disingenuous to me. The opportunity and access gap for our black and brown kids has been growing and growing and growing. And we know, Paul, you know this, because you've been, you've been doing this work for long enough to know that it's not just the education system that's impacting them. It's all of those compounding social systems that we refuse to address when the light started shining on the fact that the COVID-19 was disproportionately affecting communities of color, people who look like me. And then, and then, and right now, right now, right now, today, Black and brown people are being turned away from hospitals. They are not getting the care they need. They are dying at disproportionate rates. Why? Because of the institutional racism that has been built into the social systems of this country. So yes, but say, you know what? Send the kids if, back if, to if, school, if you prioritize, not... if you prioritize white teachers over black grandmothers, you are placing black. And who who's doing that? Much more Nobody, at risk. Who's doing that, Paul? Don't, well, don't, that's exactly you know, bring what's that, been bring proposed. The conversation down to give teachers priority means putting them ahead of. But I, I, I said, I said before. Means. But I said before that's not what we've said. We've said to follow the CDC guidelines and make sure that educators are in that priority in in those priorities. That's what well, you criticize the governors for not putting teachers ahead of other people on the list, and the other people who are ahead of them are all over the age of sixty-five. We have been the clear. People who are ahead of them in some states are older people. Paul, we've been clear. We've been clear from the beginning. Put the old people down the list. So we have been clear from the beginning that we are asking for them to follow the guidelines of the CDC. And what did they say? Prioritize educators, not ahead of the people in those age groups. That's not what we said. It's not what we said. It's not what the CDC said. What we're saying is to the governors is put them on the list. Put them on the list. That's what we're saying. That's what we said. That's what the CDC said. And that's what we're asking them to do. 
Well, I'm glad you clarified that because I was confused by the message. I didn't read it that way. So I really do appreciate you're making it clear that when you say that, you're really not sort of saying that teachers have to go to the to the very top, even though there might be other people that is not who what are we really, said, yeah. really desperately needing it. So when do you think the schools are going to open? Are they going to open? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball. Are they going to be that? open in September? I really do. Um, here's here's what I think. This is my my. I hope I'll put. I guess that's all I can say. I think the Congress is very close uh, to passing the American Rescue Act. I think they're close. We we both know to your point, you know, that that's going to take a, a minute. You know how a bill becomes a law. That's sausage making. It's going to take a minute, right? And then for the for the money to get to the states and to the local districts so that they can do what they need to do to make the school safe. That can take months and months. Um, but I tell you what we're, what we're doing. Let me tell you what we're doing. We're working with our educators and, and with partners, not only in the school, but throughout the community. Because if we're not ready when the money comes, then you're right, it'll take a little longer. So we're working on that right now to identify within each individual school district and each individual school, what the needs are to, to uh, meet the CDC guidelines. Will you promise um, me, will you promise our listeners, will you promise that the schools will be open in September? Can I promise? I can't, I can't. Can you promise me, Paul, that there will be no more variants coming to our shores? I can't promise that. But here's what I believe. Uh, President Biden has worked really, really hard to try to do the, the things that he talked about with the vaccinations. So um, increasing the, the production. Uh, uh, improving the distribution, which you know is chaotic. That was the other thing our members said that they don't even know when it was time for them. Even when they fell into the age category, they couldn't find how to get them. They, you know, it was chaotic and, and there wasn't enough information trying to work on that. Um, but if people, one of the things the CDC said, which nobody, I don't hear anybody talking about this, but one of the things they said is, you know, if we're ever gonna do that, if we're gonna have our schools fully reopened in, in September, then it, everyone in the community has to understand that it's their responsibility to do their part. And their part means getting those infection rates down, keeping them down so we can fully open our society, including our schools, and we can make sure that we are surrounding our students with what they need so they can be successful. And you didn't ask me this question, but I'm gonna throw this in there too. We do know. We do know that our students who have been most marginalized in our society have been impacted by the variety, not just the, the virus, but the resulting um, uh, inequities that, you know, from healthcare to economic crisis, housing insecurity, food insecurity, all of those things. So oh, we, yeah, know that, that's we know very, that it's a very good there. point because if you're not in school, you're not getting the eye examinations, you're not right. getting your examinations, right. you're right. not getting your, your teeth examined. Like, right. uh, my wife was just telling me that when she was a little girl, it was the school who said to her parents, you need to have this child's teeth examined. And right. all those things young people need today as much as back then. And if you're right. in school, none of that's happening. And that can- Let me tell you that that is happening. You saw it in the spring because the news was reporting on it, but you didn't, you probably didn't know that it was still going on through the fall. That educators, not just our teachers, but food service workers and bus drivers and all of those other adults in the system, they were making sure our kids were getting fed. They were driving around, not just our kids, but you know, our families. They were, uh, they, and, and I'm gonna tell you this, um, one of the things that we're really pushing for is an expansion of community schools. 
because in those places where they had the community schools already in place before the pandemic, they already had that, that whole, whole student approach. So they, the students were getting their eye exams. They were partnering with food pantries. They were partnering, partnering with the Boys and Girls Club. So they had caring adults that when, they're, when the student had parents who were essential workers and, and couldn't be with them, to help them with their learning, they were stepping in and doing those things. So those are I kind quite of agree with you. I yeah. love the community school concept. I think it's just truly great to bring the whole community into Absolutely. And that's what we're doing and we're doing it now. But you can't do that without opening the schools. You have to open And we are, and as I said, Paul. It has to be the central and most important thing. Nothing, everything has to be put second place to getting the schools open. If this generation of children already has suffered seriously, a whole generation, they've been out of school for a year, many, many, many of them. It, they have to go back to school. And we absolutely want that. Now, we don't want just them in school. We want our educators in school because they have suffered greatly over this year, too. This has not been an easy year for them to teach and nurture their students in a virtual way or in a hybrid way or or worse, you saw in the fall, where it's so chaotic, where they were opening and closing and opening one wing of the school and all of that. We want them to go back to school safely and we want them to stay in school. We wanna do all of that. We wanna to come together and figure out how we're gonna address their social, their academic needs now, their social and emotional needs, the trauma that they've been through. We can only do that if we do it together. It's gonna take all of us to make sure that we not only make up those gaps that we know were exacerbated in this year, I could not agree more with that, but we also have to take this opportunity to do better because these inequities have existed forever. What are we gonna do moving forward so that it is better for our kids? Well, I really thank you for clarifying these many issues. And I thank you for joining us today on the Education Exchange uh, uh, President Pringle, uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Professor Peterson. Thank you for the lively exchange. All right. Well, it's been great fun chatting with you and, and very informative and clarifying. So thank you very much. You are so welcome. Uh, with me today on the Education Exchange, Becky Pringle, President of the National Association of Education. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new education podcast every Monday at noon Eastern time.